If you talk to Chick Corea and you ask him, like, what's the proudest moment you ever had in your jazz history? And he always says that I was a jazz messenger. And there's only a few of us uh, compared to the whole array of musicians that are out there. But, uh, yeah, I, I was a jazz messenger for, like, a year and a half. And, I mean, that's... That's like, uh, you know, like guys who play with Miles Davis. You can play with Miles Davis. Or you can even go earlier. I played in Duke Ellington's band, Count Basie. But when it comes to Bop, you know, you play with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. That was, you know, you learned, you learned a lot. Just being around Art, you learn all the good and the bad things. Things you should do and things you shouldn't do. Things that you do but you know you shouldn't do. <laughs> And how, how old were you at that time for our, for our listeners? How, how old were I was, you? I had just uh, turned 19, I think. I think I was 18 or 19 around that time playing with them. So was this around the time Coltrane died and you considered picking you, up the sax? Yeah, she and really Lenny did slapped you around. Oh, well, I love that story. Yeah, well. Thank you, Lenny White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you really did it. I told Lenny, don't tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, Coltrane was uh, probably my favorite uh, musician, and um, I, I was really influenced by his music, and and even him. What little I knew about him as a person, and uh, when he died, it really affected me tremendously. You know, so I, I swear, I woke up one morning, and I said, "I'm giving up the bass. That's it." And I mean, I I was fairly accomplished at that point. I mean, I could play. I was I could have played in. An, I was training to be in an or, in an orchestra. I had studied like a lot, but it just was a significant uh, blow in my soul, you know. So I said, I'm giving up the bass. So I bought a saxophone. <laughs> I bought a little beanie. Where? Why? Don't ask me. Uh, I know. I know. Don't laugh. But I bought this little beanie. Maybe it was my Afrocentric side, you know, kicking through. So I get this saxophone. I sound god awful, just awful. And I'm playing it every day, every day, every day. So Lenny comes down to visit me from New York. Comes down to Philly. I let him in my apartment. I either he goes to the bathroom and I go back in the room and I'm picking up my saxophone because I mean I was at it I'm like a real student I know how to study I'm like going three four hours a day but just awful and Lenny came in man what are you doing would you put that saxophone down we gotta go let's go get something to eat man I said man I'm, I'm I've, I've given up the bass and Lenny you know like a good friend sat down and said Stanley Stanley <laughs> Stanley. <laughs> it just reminded me, you know, what the hell I should have been doing. You know, it's, it's, it's a funny story. Lenny, Lenny promised me he wouldn't tell anybody. Oh, okay. I got some Lenny White stories, but anyway. Standing on Themis were Johnny Unitas, Sidney Bechet, and the General Sherman Trio playing the most sensitive, unobtrusive music I had ever heard. The staccato attacks and bold passages helped them reach jazz. 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 It was jazz. jazz. I consider it jazz. 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 Jazz.
Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And we love jazz. It's just one of the many genre of music we love. Right, Seth? Right. But this is our second part of our anniversary show for our fifth year anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. And thank you for tuning back in. We applaud your intellectual curiosity. Very valuable to have those type of people in the music world because those are the type of people who are interested in podcasts where we get into interesting conversations. Isn't that right, Seth? I think it's correct. And where do you go if you want to find like a ton of podcasts that are really interesting about all oh, kinds of different... Oh, oh, Seth, oh, go ahead. Osiris. That is correct. OsirisPod.com. The wonderful Osiris Pod. And we like to talk about a different podcast each episode. And this time we're going to talk about the Jam Bass Podcast. Jam and about bass Jam Bass podcast. in general just for a second. First on the podcast. Um, As in the first guest ever? Nope. Just first on the conversational topics uh, ranking for the current moment. Oh. Jam Bass Podcast, their most recent episode has a member of Lotus, uh, Luke, who actually has a new CD out. Oh. Uh, I believe it's his first solo one called Luke of the Knife. And one of the reasons, one of the things I was really intrigued by mm-hmm. was um, one of the songs is is based on a Bessie Smith field recording. Really? Bessie Smith, one of the great it's singers of all time. If too, you're not familiar with her, you maybe are familiar with the song from the Basement Tapes. But she was um, a guitarist too, wasn't she? No. Oh. I'm going down the road oh, yeah. to oh, yeah, see yeah. Bessie Smith. I think Danko sings that one. I think he wrote the majority of it. Anyways, I I digress. You do. Gotta talk about Jam Bass though, Seth. Yeah, well, first of all, Jam Bass has been around for a while, but they keep reinventing themselves. In the last year, they've done more than reinventing themselves. For example, when we had Scott Bernstein on about a year ago, it was because Scotty we were- B. What's that? Scotty B. Scotty B. Hey, Scotty B, the desk flipper himself. We um, interviewed him about how quickly Jam Bass pivoted oh, and came up with yeah. the live stream page, which I have to tell you. Tell us. People way beyond the jam world have been relying on that for for over a year now. It's been a big part of us, those of us who are really into music. Not Maybe it doesn't work for people who just go to shows for the party. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But for those of us who just who like the music and like shows, being able to to know what was going on at any given night, webcast wise, was extremely valuable to our sanity. It's so weird how quickly things happened in mm-hmm. the last year, and mm. then how they went by. Yeah, because because I'm looking back, like now we're we're getting towards the we're now past the middle of March, towards the end. This is when quarantine really hit, and right. and when you After, think it really, it was about it was I'll tell you, it was March 11th. Yeah, but I mean, lockdown here in Atlanta was what the 18th or so. But still, not sure. I remember March 11th. I was listening to the Dead Hour. Actually, the, WNCW. My Shout point, out to WNCW. My point is, is that when I look back at last year and I think about how quickly Jam Base pivoted to getting the live stream uh, feed and this sort of stuff, it happened rather quickly when you think of stuff. And he told us there was a lot of long hours by some of the key people to oh. to get that thing out there as quickly as possible. Which again. Help the listeners occupy their time and be entertained. Help the artists get their music out there or generate some money for the paid webcast. Well, you know, I, I bet if you, well, I don't know if there's a way to do a study, but I, I my gut tells me that these artists that were, that I, I bet you that because of Jambase and the amount of clicks that went from, you know, from them to the music brought them some revenue that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Also, jam based just this past year, which, has, which is which is a nice thing because often with these site websites they're getting paid, but now they actually help 
these artists get paid in the time of need. Websites with these services and streaming services yes. and so forth. Yes, that's a whole other thing, and that's I do like that point. Jambase, from what I know, is very interested not in just taking the money and taking the glory, but also spreading the love. Let's see. Let's see it with podcasts. What other news source is as uh, um, forthcoming with podcast praise? Others seem to to treat you as competition even if you're partnered with them well <laughs> but jambase doesn't just hold it to their partnership with osiris which by the way if you go on jambase they have a whole podcast section which does feature the osiris podcast network right and podcasts of that network but they which is great reference I- they'll reference other podcasts in their in their website that aren't part of the network so i, I do go to osirispod.com and that's where i look for if i, I mean i have my favorite podcast on the Show, you know, Welcome to Party Pal and Beyond the Pond, which is gone now, and uh, well, of course, were, Marshall's podcast and uh, The Road to Now. I mean, there's a lot of great shows, but if I just want to go, what, I want to hear a pod, uh, an Osiris podcast, I actually go to OsirisPod.com. The cool thing about Jambase yes, is people yes. who've never even heard of Osiris Pod mm-hmm. get lured in that direction because they stumble upon, hopefully, one of our best uh, podcasts, right, Todd? Which is this one that you're listening to right now because we have a collection of Awesome pieces for you to continue on. But before we do that, we're not yes. done. Oh, no, we're not done. Folks, ladies and gentlemen, at the risk of being overly optimistic, uh-huh. it feels like normality's coming back. It feels like we're coming out of this. I don't want to jump the gun or whatever stupid cliche you want to. I don't want to put my cart before the horse or whatever. But it does feel like normality's coming back. So you folks who are, especially the younger ones, who really want to get back to live music, I would be if I was younger. I'm... I'm as an older jerk who's seen many shows, I'm a little more wait, wait and let other people see them first. But if, you, if you're waiting for your favorite bands to come back, there's no better way oh, yeah. than to keep up with jambase.com, than to keep up with osirispod.com. Sign up, join their newsletters, and stay in the loop so that when tickets go on sale, when things get announced, you oh. know about it. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we release a new podcast. We want you to know about it. Sure, that's, that's huge. Huge, huge. Well, we've got a great show in store for you today. Uh, We do want to do a couple thank yous here on the top of the hour. No, we're doing the thank yous later. Oh, we are? Yeah. Well, then thank you later. Unless you want to do Scott Bernstein. Well, yeah. All right. Scott Bernstein, a beacon of light in this music world. That's No pun intended because he's a New Yorker? Beacon Theater? Because he went to the Beacon? No, they did do that. And second-guessed himself after a certain show? Poor guy. It must be tough to be in that city with those connections and have to decide during a COVID era whether or not to go see a very exclusive event with only 20 people there, but you're exposing yourself. Must be a tough call. Seriously. You know me. I'd expose myself. I'd be like... Oh, you... Yeah, you... you or maybe I wouldn't. <laughs> that there wouldn't be 20 people. When Rob exposes himself, <laughs> there's like two left. If yeah, that. clear the house, which <laughs> is actually is a minimized exposure. So maybe you're onto something. Uh, maybe. Anyway, Scotty, thank you for everything you do. Everybody over there, Jambase, great people, do great work. I read it all the time. But moving on, we uh, are keeping with the theme of jazz that we uh, snuck at you first. That was Stanley Clark. Mm-hmm. We interviewed him at the City Winery. He was very kind and generous with, with his time. He also put on a great show. His band at the time had Fareed Hawk. You people may know from, uh, what was his name of his band again? Garage Trois. Yes. No, no Garage Hall. Hall. Garage Mahal. uh, (laughs) Garage this, garage that. Yeah, something about a garage. Randy Brecker was in the band. Paul Hansen, which if you go back and listen to episode 66 that Stanley Clark, uh, his features Stanley Clark, the way he found Paul Hansen is a very, very cool story. Um, Man, they put on two great shows. Tim Landers on Oz is Edlin. Oz is ever flowing over on the keyboard there. 
But now we're pivoting to Billy Cobham. And why are we doing this one, Seth? Well, why are we doing this, Rob? Because he tells a story. He talks about oh, the Grateful Dead. Yeah, let's just put it this way. And it folks. ends with a cool Hold story. On. Rob Rob went fishing on this one. Rob, sometimes Rob knows what he wants to get out of folks. And, sometimes. Sometimes and, I know what I want to avoid. Yes, yes, that's true, too. And then but, sometimes I just get that when But this one, you, you, you kept... You kept just kind of take nudging him and he kept being like he just kept going to smoke and you're like paper he's yeah, like no yeah. smoke and he, you're like dance. you're like yeah, what about the paper well you know folks at the end he drank the kool-aid but also here's the thing um we did the whole interview with billy common if you listen to it that that original episode oh i didn't write down the number oh 99 i think it was um we held off the release of it because he had told me it was 99 there were some yeah it was later the the episode we what the Clipper playing is from episode 87 that he shared with John Husky. Uh, okay. But episode 99, we waited to release it because he was going to try to get some old audio that we discussed in the interview. Right. But then COVID hit and he went down to wherever we interviewed him from, which we, is another thing. On our yeah, YouTube that's channel. another thing. We did, uh, if you go to our YouTube channel, you can see a video we did about an hour and a half of just chit chatting with him on a live stream. That's just, I mean, that, that was some good content. But this clip was buried at the end of a Medeski because I wanted to remind people that the problem episode was coming and we had a very long interview interview with billy and and seth likes the the um podcast short and i guess that's not a bad thing certainly under two hours because sometimes people can't download them if they're over two hours you need to tell them that now now all of a sudden there's going to be two hours of us telling them how it's going to be two hours (laughs) so a couple cool stories um but the jazz piece well before you move on rob yes stanley clark Mm. billy cup Mm. Listeners may not even realize these are some jazz legends. Stanley Clark was in Mahavishnu Orchestra with Chick Corea and Lenny White, who's the one who talked him out of playing the saxophone, which is mm-hmm. the story you heard at the top of the show. And Billy Cobham was in Mahavishnu Orchestra and has played just with a who's who of rock and jazz. Uh, when we talked to Billy, icons. we've got, I mean, that, at that point, I, I got hit up by musicians that were on the show as guests and other musicians that. Like that have been on the show. So Skarrick, for example, you know, saw that and hit me up. And I'm like, we haven't even had Skarrick on the show. But he was listen. He as soon as he caught wind, Billy was being interviewed. He was in it because see, some of these musicians, they they have such weight in the music community. Yeah, I just I as I've often say on the show, a lot of my friends do not listen. Most of my friends don't listen to the show. But there are a couple three that normally don't listen that got in touch with me and were like, hey, I checked out the Billy Cobham thing. That was really good. You guys, you guys really took a walk around the park with him. That was interesting stuff. So, yeah, very gratifying, even though not big, huge numbers, you know, not John Fishman numbers, but still, well, I as mean, long as people are listening and getting something from it, that's a good thing. So what are they going to get from this clip? We already told them. Let's just pull, throw to it. All right. Start I'll, the tape. Should I roll the tape? Keystone Berkeley. Keystone, Keystone Berkeley, Keystone sure. San Francisco. That's yeah. what it was, yeah. You sat in with a Garcia band or with Merle Projects? I think it was with Merle. Mm-hmm. How much did you get to know Garcia? Not much. I don't know if anybody got to know Jerry. <laughs> but you got Except time? for Mountain Girl. Sure. Uh, but, I mean, it was never... It was just... Jerry's just an easygoing guy, you know, straight ahead. He was a great... Um, he represented... He was like a titular leader of in the music industry for that thing. Like, I had the, kind of the interesting, I can't say honor, but I lived literally at one point on West Blythedale, right next to Bill Graham. 
his garden with my garden with a fence in the middle. And uh, those guys went in and out. You know, a lot of people went but backwards and forwards. It was just so loose and so straightforward, man. It was no big deal. Everybody seemed to know everybody. It was, it was cool. Nineteen seventy six, yeah, was yeah. So you started working with Dig Rhythm Man long before the Bobby and the Midnight thing, right? No. Dig Rhythm Devils got me right around uh Bobby and the Midnight. Yeah. Right around the same time. Yeah, because we were opening for Jerry and them. A lot. You, um, you even went out to Jamaica? You, we went to Jamaica. Was, that wasn't uh, what an experience. What yeah, you said you learned not to drink the punch. There you go. That Did was that was after that was on Saturday Night Live. Because uh, I was I was the drummer on Saturday Night Live. That's seventy nine mm-hmm. or seventy eight. Drummer on Saturday Night Live, and for that for that season, and I was I was just out of it, just on the contact high. Man, it was off the hook. I mean, just sitting there, you couldn't see the Tamil logo on my bass drum. <laughs> Actually. It was the other way around. You could see the Tamil logo on my bass drum, but it had a cloud under it, as if it was floating above above the sky. When they said, introducing the band, what you saw were the knees of the band um, because there was a cloud below the knees. And, 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 and then it was hazy. All, it was like more hazy than wavy gravy. It was like unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, and it was just like what with Lou Ferrini and all. Everybody was like out of it, and um, and I, I, I for one, couldn't stay because I physically just couldn't, couldn't keep up. I'd like to point out you very, very sober guy, and always because I didn't do that kind of stuff, right? You know, and so talk about pure hit, bang, right? And I was like. And then when they came on the road, came on the show, and they were doing the week at New York uh, Radio City Music Hall, that was one of the most amazing uh, experiences to, to to understand that for that whole week, where they did two or three shows a day, okay, in Radio City Music Hall, forty five hundred people a show, seven days. That's 21 shows. Three sets, acoustic, electric, Three electric. sets, man. Right? They're changing the house, right? And the only thing that went wrong during that period with all the policemen that 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 was managing, uh, I think it was a 10-block radius around that place. It could be less. They all had a, a deadhead button <laughs> on their caps, right? This is New York's finest. The only things that happened, that was a wonderful thing, there were three babies born in the hall. Wow. There was no, zero, no problems outside. What are those babies are today? Oh, baby. <laughs> Ira Gross, who is engineering this for me and with us, um, saw you sit in with them. Mm-hmm. So I think not just for I mean they always have the drums segment in the middle of the second set or at those shows well, third that was, set. What was it? Zakir, Ayrton Moreira, Flora was somewhere floating around. You know? Hamza. Yeah, of course. You know Kreutzmann, the usual suspects. 
I don't have a and, and I after that was over, me and Mickey Hart, Kreutzmann. I was living on Central Park West and 86th Street. I still don't understand how I got home. <laughs> I was in the same car with those cats. All I know was that I was sitting on the curb at in front of my building, but I don't know how I got there. Did you get dosed ever? Huh? Well, they were known for, don't drink the punch. They were known for... I had no idea what I... I mean, I had something to drink, and I realized I wouldn't do that anymore. So you did, you might have had a psychedelic... I, did, I don't know if it was that, because it was painless, man. It was like, all of a sudden, you just were not in the same place that you were before you had it. Well, it's bear stuff, of course. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you also played on one night on songs, not just during the drum cycle. Well, yeah, I just, I mean, I had that in a chocolate chip cookie. That's all I know. <laughs> That's all I know. But I want to ask you about not the drum segment because you're just going for it and you're used to that's very mm-hmm. much your setting. When you're playing with the Grateful Dead on songs, mm-hmm. a lot of musicians tell me that one of the keys of their music is that they play the melodic instruments often play behind the beat. They're pretty laid back. But that that's an easy one to deal with. If you are in sync with yourself, you just play along with where the tempo is. You don't try to force it to where it's, you think it's supposed to be. You can play ahead of the tempo, you can play in the center of the beat, and you can play behind the beat. And for me, it's, it's, it's just about feeling. I had, I had no trouble playing with those guys. It was fine. So did you draw on that when you played in Jazz is Dead? Did you draw on that experience? And were you, were you talking um, to... I'm not, not consciously, no. It's just what I did anyway. You know, to me, it's, I'm just playing with fellow musicians, and this is, this is how we treat the music, and it's another day on, on the bandstand. You know, no problem. And... Um, then we got the Midnights, which the first album is, I think is really underrated. Mm-hmm. And you would get your big moment. Do you remember the Me Without You? I don't have a clue, man. That Again, was your song. I made that mistake of having a little bit of punch when I shouldn't have. Oh, okay. So I don't know. But we got it done. That, that's all I know. Well, I kind of heard the record after. I'd done my parts. Because I used to get my parts done, not, not consciously quickly, but because of my experiences in the studio... Alfonso was there. Um, everything was cool, and we just do the tracks with Cochran. Cochran right on the money, no problem. And then it was up to where to do whatever they wanted to do with it. But I wasn't going to hang around there, and so I could get my stuff done in a couple of days, two, three days, and then they take months doing whatever they did. And there it was Billy Cobham giving me time alone in his hotel room. Very cool. Very mm. good guy. He got to meet his wife. Sadly, he told us a Jack Bruce story off mic. Um, he, uh, I don't know, it was weird. I don't know. We kind of truncated the end of it there. Did you? Yeah, we ran out of time, but it turned out he did have time. And I don't know. Thank you, Ira Gross, for helping us with that. As you hear in the interview, he was part of that, Ira. Ira and I have been doing walks a lot during COVID. He's oh, have dude. you? You've been doing walkabouts. He's an extremely cerebral fellow who's not uh, partisan. He's a very uh, clear-headed view of the world. It's very refreshing as the world gets more and more partisan. One of the most brilliant people I know. Thanks, Ira. You know, speaking of Ira, we've had a lot of different, well, not a lot, but we've had a handful of people helping us out with recording, and I'm very grateful to have the Zoom recorder and finally being able to get myself to be able to do the recording for us, but uh, be it Josh Thane, Robert Kwan, Spencer from Mm -hmm. Diamond Street Studios, Mm -hmm. Spencer Pope, and then of course, Ira, we've had some good people there to record for us, and uh, and not a moment goes by without 
wanted to say thank you. So we, thank you. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. And Ira continues to do so and is looking forward to doing it in the future. And hopefully we'll do more with Spencer Diamond Street. I've, I, the last time I talked to him, he seemed a pretty good spurt. Sport. Spurts? Spirits. 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 You know, uh, as we move on now to Sam Bush, uh, I'm reminded... You know, last episode we had Billy Strings on, and I'm reminded of a story Billy Strings oh, yeah. <laughs> told us toward the end of his uh, interview. I, I forget how the question came up, something about what have, what have you picked up from older players. And Billy talked about being in a super jam and finishing his solo and going and mm-hmm. grabbing a drink and then looking over and seeing Sam Bush, who wasn't even near a microphone, just rhythming his heart out and still throwing his energy into what was going on and how Billy was influenced by that, that no matter what, if you're on stage, you should, you should be feeding me on stage. You shouldn't be lost in your own world. Yeah. And it's just, you hear about Sam Bush, what a great positive influence he is from so many people. He's the mayor of like four bluegrass festivals. Yes. Yes, he is. And the godfather to so many musicians out there. You and know, it was, it was a tough, uh, we didn't have a place to do the interview. The engineer showed up late. Uh, it was a tough, it, it, it all kind of was rushed and hurried, but they kindly let us go on their bus, Sam and his Yo, Yeah, you can hear the hum of the bus in the background, which actually made for an interesting ambiance. Ambiance, yeah. And he played a song for us, which was Oh, cool. yeah. But like, he also, I love that interview. What was, let me rephrase that. One of the things I really loved about that interview, which we've experienced with a few, just a, a peppering of other musicians, is when they sit with their instrument. And it's like he's sitting there with his mandolin, and he hasn't played it the whole time, but it's just kind of like part of the interview. And like occasionally he'll play something, but mostly he'll just like when he's thinking an idea or not just him. When we talk to musicians and they're thinking through an idea, they riff on the instrument and then the idea comes out. And it sets them at ease. It's another way to set them at ease. Yeah. Anything to set them at ease and make it not yeah. like, you know, a question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Like I always say, deposition. We want to have a conversation. We don't want to uh-huh. suck. Uh-huh. Uh, what's the word? <laughs> That's cool. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, uh, Rob. Um, Bruna <laughs> Hint. Just like a Swiss watch. All right, let's throw it. Sam Bush. First of all, you made a live album in the then condemned Ryman Auditorium. Is uh-huh. that correct? That is correct. Why was it condemned at that time? Because there was holes in the floor and the plumbing was shot and there was, there was holes in the roof. And, I mean, it was this building was falling apart. And... Uh, and so I think they were allowed 250 people maybe were in there. And that's and the applause sounds so great on that. But part of the sound of that record is the sound of that room. It really is. And, um, and I truly believe that uh, by Emmy Lou and the band recording that live album, that she really helped save that building. I mean, it was that... I don't know if they had plans to renovate it yet, but there was only one working bathroom and there were holes in the floors and plumbing shot. And it was just amazing. There were holes in some of the windows up top we could see as we were doing it. Uh, luckily, it was warm. But because uh, when she first said she wanted to do a live album, I, I said, wow, yeah, great, man. She goes, I want to do it to Ryman. I said, wow, Emmy, I've heard that the Ryman is condemned. She goes, perfect. <laughs> Let's do it there. So how many people were in the audience? 250. <laughs> I mean, it was it was pretty much an invited audience of, you know, people, just, all Nashvillians. Because it's much. condemned, you can't sell tickets, right? I guess that's how it worked, but I, th- I think it was pretty much an invited audience. And, of course, Nashville uh, always has the largest guest list of anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing, we're in Atlanta, 
And there was one time you were here with the Nash Ramblers, and the Atlanta Braves were in the seventh game mm-hmm. of the a very famous game here. It was all thanks to Emmy Lou and me that they won that game. <laughs> well, we were allowed, uh, she used to throw me a bone and let me walk on. She, she uh, let, let's preface. Emmy would sing the Star Spangled Banner. And of course, everybody loves Emmy Lou, as they should. And uh, so, she, you know, she could have done this with a harmonica or a pitch pipe or something, but she let me walk on field and hit, the, hit a chord to give her the pitch. Of you the, got one job. I, that was it. And then I stood there and hold the guitar the rest of the song. And I remember walking off the field. Cause, so we got to sing before that game. But we didn't get to stay for the game. We were playing across town. And after, the, after we finished our set, I had my – and not to mention what a great boss she is because she'd let me watch baseball while we played it, as long as I told her the score. So I said, can I watch the Braves game? She goes, if you tell me the score. So anyhow, as it all turned out, at the end of that job that night, uh, we, um, we were watching my little Watchman TV when you could still get you know, over airwaves, and we were listening to the Atlanta. We were listening oh, to Skip Carey call the game, but we were watching it there, and, and sure enough, old Sid Bream chugged around and <laughs> scored, <laughs> which is amazing. Was. Does anybody remember who threw the ball to home plate to try to get Sid Bream? I remember Cabrera got the hit. Was it Bar- Would it be Bonds? Yeah, Bonds was playing left field. I say, if you guys didn't know, I know who I could call that would know. <laughs> Starts with Colonel. I just happened Bruce. to have seen that just the other day. Actually, oh, really? you had a question about the Colonel, did you not? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we're, we're asking all the musicians that have been touched by the Colonel uh, uh, what influence he has had on your life. Uh, and we only he, have a half hour. He's influenced, <laughs> he's influenced me to be ready for any time he comes at me with a baseball quiz because he's the best at baseball quizzes. Uh, if anything, just Bruce Hampton has, has inspired people to play out on stage. You know, take a chance. Don't do the safe thing all the time. I think that's what, what Bruce brings to the table. He encourages us all to not be safe. Mm-hmm. And also that, that transcends into... Uh, parking lots and garages and anywhere. And while we're on Absolutely. baseball, Lefty Song has a baseball element to it, and and Allison Krauss sings on that as well. Yeah, well, yeah, because when when you it says it in the first line when Lefty Clark was a young man, he was a handsome Sunday athlete, and somebody is already of a you know much younger than me. I said, right, what, well, what's a Sunday athlete? I said, well, it's you know it's like uh, my dad used to play in a men's league on Sunday afternoon playing baseball. And, uh, and I just remembered him, you know, he was a farmer, and I remember him being, his legs would be so damn sore the next day that he'd have to lift up his left leg to, do the, to work the clutch in the truck, and, and he'd always go, oh, i got to quit doing that. And, of course, he'd go right back and play next week, and he was a good ball player. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of the reference. But that lefty song, it uh, wrote in the 70s with a guy named Steve Brines, a lot of the old New Grass Revival records. Steve and I wrote the songs. And uh, he passed away in the 80s. And that song, I had lost it. I'd lost the tape of it, couldn't find it, always remembered it. And it, it wasn't kind of right for a New Grass revival, I didn't feel like. But um, but then I really got thinking about it and search and search. Man, it took for. And then all of a sudden, one day, I found that song on a cassette tape in my, you know, mess of a room. And. Um, and I care, and it hadn't been rewound. There's a reason they just say "be kind, rewind." Well, it hadn't been rewound, so I carefully rewound it with a pencil. And and uh, I, as I played the tape, I, I recorded it onto a CD, 
and as soon as it got done with the song the tape broke where it was probably in that spot and um, happily I, I did still like it and Allison used to listen to those old Newgrass records and uh, so I just I sent her the song and said does this appeal to you would you want to sing on it so she did you know, Seth, any conversation that finds its way to cassettes is a, is a conversation after my heart. Yeah, that's one that you can uh, rewind and, uh, and it, fast forward. Just like the last episode, we, are in, we have the cassette sounds included in tribute to Lou Ottens, the, ju- the Dutch inventor. I apologize if I'm saying his, pronouncing his name. and I've never heard people talk of him. I've only read about him. Well, you know, you can always uh, go back, hit rewind, and then record over what you said. <laughs> O-T-T-E-N-S, Dutch inventor who invented the cassettes and pioneered the compact disc, passed away recently. And oh, he pioneered the compact disc. Yeah, he didn't invent it, though. They don't give him invention credit on pioneered. it. Pioneered. Pioneered it. Hmm. But the cassette? He invented that. Do you know what I have in the other room? I have no. two cassette players. One, One might be mine. Sony, no. One, no, they're 100% not yours. One is my Sony yellow Walkman that I've had when oh, I was... Oh, that one sucks. I tried using it when you were away once. It, doesn't, it puts out no volume. Go on. And the other is the mini tape one, the little cassette mini tapes. I used to. Yeah, that one still works. I'd be when sure. I would travel, when I was in uh, early, like 97, 98 to 2001, uh, when I would travel like to Europe, et cetera, I would have that recorder if I was like, well, I'll just be straight. I'll be frank with you. If I was on drugs, hanging out with friends late at night, we would get the recorder and then we'd record. And so I have all these recordings of me. At any rate, anyway, so we'll great th- story. <laughs> we have a better story. Trust me, don't tune out yet, because um, before we leave Sam Bush, we have to talk about another great mandolinist who we lost recently, and not only did we lose him, but you were a big part of his memorial service, and that is Jeff Austin. So last time I saw Sam Bush was at the uh, Jeff Austin Memorial, which was in De- right outside of Denver, Colorado, right next to Boulder. Uh, the first bank center, wasn't it? I think that was it. Any rate, it was, uh, yeah, Sam, he helped, you know, again, there's a man just holding court. Yeah, every, everyone, everyone was there that's in the, you know, this community from Green Sky Bluegrass to. Well, Brandon Bayless was there, that's for sure. Yes, yes. That's all the best stories I heard about Jeff Austin are from Brandon Bayless. He always spoke very, very highly of Jeff. Yes, yeah. Oh, I mean, any rate, man, I, j- I just have these memories of Sam back there and everyone just kind of paying. I mean, it's like the king, you know what I mean? Like he was on, and it, not like a king, like he was on the throne, but the way that people would pay their respect and line up to pay their respect to, he just, he's, he's such a godfather and inspiration to so many. And he's just an aw shucks about it too, which makes it even more uh, wonderful. But man, losing, losing Jeff was, was big to the community and it definitely, uh, Definitely ripped the Band-Aid. Now, let's get, I'm going to rewind that, pun intended, on the cassettes. But it wasn't that it was ripping the Band-Aid, but it really brought to the forefront of conversation mental health. And we went through a lot this year, well, that year, uh, in, in the sense of mental health in our jam, bluegrass, whatever, in the, in the music community that we're a part of, right? Uh, and... What one of the big things that one of the big things that is happening with mental health is the breaking down of this stigma. Yeah. And that's the big thing, because if you're having problems, you should not feel badly or bad. I guess I feel bad about reaching out 
for help. There's no, there's no shame in that. There's actually, if there is any shame, it's in not reaching out when there could be people to help you. And there's people that love you out there and want you around no matter uh, who yeah. you are. Yeah, that, that is right. And, and the thing is, is when, with that year, what was it, 2000 and what, 20, uh, 2019, 18, what? 19? When we did the... No, all, 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 all the, the deaths and a lot in our, oh, in you're our scene. Oh, right, that's been a year now. That was 2019. Uh, so one of the big things uh, that we noticed was is that you're not alone. Like, if you think you're alone in this, you, these celebrities that you... Celebrities, these musicians that we love, they go out and they play this music, you're like, How's a guy like Jeff Austin? Sure, he might have been a dick to some people because of his personality, but my point... Or someone like Neil Casale, who plays this beautiful guitar that fills us with these great feelings. How could he possibly be struggling and sad inside? And then you go back and listen to the interview we did with Neil. We had no clue. No. We, we, didn't walk, we walked away thinking something totally different. Nothing came up about him being yeah. mentally me as challenged. And, as a matter of fact... Not mentally challenged, but you know what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, we know what you're saying. But as a matter of fact, after we hung out, normally we're blasting out after shows, but we hung out till the bitter end then. And then I, I think he and Adam came up to us or he and another member of the band were like, hey, let's go see some live music. What can we go see? And we're, of course, oh, we're, yeah, no, we're after right the near the show. North Side Tavern when we're at Terminal West and there's always something going on yeah. there. Yeah. No, Grant Green Jr. Mm -hmm. Jr. was playing that. So yeah, we, we brought to Neil Grant to Jr. see Grant. That's right. Oh, we totally hung out with him. And he loved it. He yeah. loved it. He because loved it was Grant. like a New York moment in Atlanta. Like, you don't, God, you know what, man? I, I, Shit, shit, right? It's coming back, Seth. I know, but like... It's coming back. But those are... Do you, you know what? I don't... I've been saying this. Like, I don't miss going to shows as much as I thought I would, but that's what I miss. Yeah, that's what I miss. Getting these, like, nuggets of, like, getting... getting. That's what I miss, man. I, I really you. do miss those nuggets. But let me just say that, you know, Neil's passing affected so many people. I mean, he's just the nicest guy. One time I hung out with him at Christmas Jam, and he was one of the performers on the bill, but hanging out with him in the show in the crowd, it was like hanging out with another fan. No airs. I mean, uh, uh, just such a great guy. So when he passed, took his life, the, the impact was profound. And for us, we did an episode thanks to Nucci Space, thanks to Anders Osborne, Excuse me, Anders. Anders. Let me mix that up because it's counterintuitive. You'd think the Osborne would be an Anders. But it's the Anders. The back yeah. is the Anders. Yeah. It's counterintuitive, dude. I'm telling you. Uh, and Andy Frasco. And um, they uh, came on and talked with us about mental health. And that was excellent. Yeah. that and was then, And that was, we actually, that was when Backline just started. Right. Like, and that Backline was, was just inspired by, by the Neil passing as well. It definitely was. This organization. And uh, yes. So then COVID happened. And these NPOs, nonprofit organizations, had uh -huh. to pivot. Yes, they did. And we, uh, one of the, probably the, the episode during COVID that I'm most proud of. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had uh, Eric Steinberg, odd spelling of the name, A-R-I-C. Seems pretentious, but he's a good man. He's working with a great, you know, it's like having the name Jefferson and not just going with Jeff. It's like, just spell it with an E. Right, okay. He's from Sweet Relief. We had Which Sweet Relief, by the way, is the organization that was the benefactor for the Jeff Austin Memorial and raised all the money for his family. So just to... And Victoria Williams people should be aware of Sweet Relief because uh, she was uh, one of the initial hmm. impetus spirit of... Yes. Uh, backline, Hillary Gleason joined us. Justin Levy. Levy? Levy. Justin Levy of Not Levy. He's not a Levy. He's a Levy. And Kristen Summer Swagger, our second interview she with her. She just had a baby. Mazel tov to her. Congratulations. Of what, we interviewed her at Lockin once. 
and we thought we were we were saving because we thought we were going to go back the next year and it didn't work out so that we hasn't been used yet it'll be in our box set or we'll use it for something but what a wonderful set. woman she is she, really big hearted hard working very cool woman right south mm-hmm. so we wanted to give a shout out that's uh, our mental health episode is 86 the mpo's episode is 97 please check those out but in the meantime um here we were uh, this is from episode 82 Neil Casal shared it with Joel Cummins of uh, Humphreys McGee, who yes. had just released that book with Matt DeCorsi called The Realist Guide to a Successful Music Career. Strange that Joel Cummins would write a book and it'd be really good, but he did, and it hey. was really fucked up. He it? wasn't even a ghostwriter. Wow. It must have been DeCorsi. Yeah, good <laughs> But with but, uh, with this, with Neil here, folks, um, yeah, just... Just enjoy it, and we'll talk more in a minute here. Okay. Take a time back to, um, to an interview that... So, no, that took place. Neither Seth. Uh, t- t- uh, the reason why I, I paused there was okay. I wanted to give credit to Terminal Westby's Dan here, Cox. Dan Cox. Yeah, Dan the man. On, uh, Terminal West has been another home of our show, and every time we come there to do an interview, they always make us welcome. They treat us like family. So, cheers to Terminal Real quick, West. The Medeski interview that's in the Cobham episode that we played a clip yep. from earlier. There was nowhere to do it because of uh, extenuating circumstances that night. They went to their office. They they cleared out the <laughs> they cleared out the, the head guy and let us interview John Medeski in the in the for, in the uh, foyer of their office. And so kind. Thank you, Terminal West. And I um, I'm hoping things are going well and that we'll we'll hear more from them. But folks, here's, here's a snippet from an interview neither Neil Seth nor myself will ever forget. Saul. So let's get back to where we were. When you look back in your life, the time between Blackfoot and Ryan Adams, what musically stands out most of you in that period of time? Oh, well, that's when I was doing my singer-songwriter bit. You know? you're, you're Graham Parsons. You listen to Graham Parsons. Right? Yeah, I hear yeah. him in your music. Yeah, I was all about Graham Parsons and Neil Young and Jackson Brown's early records and country rock, you know, folk music, like psych country, um, all of the... F- Things that um, you know, yeah, it was like the no depression scene, the yes. alternative. You know, I loved Uncle Tupelo and Joe Henry, oh, yeah. and I was obsessed with Jayhawks, Hollywood Town Hall, and Blue Earth, and those records. Um, you know, there were I don't know uh, Victoria Williams and Whiskey Town. Uh, yeah, was well, they came that. later, really, for me. Um, but um, and at that time in the early mid nineties. I was working with a guy named Jim Scott, an engineer producer who worked on Tom Petty's Wildflowers, and he produced the Whiskey Town Strangers Almanac after my f- first record. Um, I'll say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but I mean, I got to know Ryan then. You know, that was like an amazing time period, really. The 90s were incredible, uh, looking back on it. Uh, so that was my world. I wasn't. I had seen Grateful Dead shows and I'd seen Jerry Band and I had played the Wetlands and been around that mm-hmm. scene, but I was not a total jam band kid at all. Um, I was into what we were just talking about. Right. I was into songwriting. Not that there's no songwriting in the jam scene, but it's no, a different trip. We, we, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I was into the Birds and the Brito Brothers and and uh, you know Gene Clark and all of the Steve Young and all of the really. I was looking for all of the obscurities that I could find. Um, 
you know, I loved Towns Van Zandt. I went to see him play, and I loved Bert Yanch and John Remborn and the UK folk people, and I saw Bert and John play, and I would go to LA and record with Jim Scott, and, you know, if you look up all the people he's wor- worked with, it's just, it's astounding. I mean, he produces, like, Tedeschi Trucks now, and um, so Jim was, like, a big part of my world, and Gary was there with me, and John Ginty was my keyboard player. He oh. now plays, you know, when Almond Betts, and yeah, yeah, yeah. He, you know, if you talk to him, he, John and I started out together. We He's were, played a ton of groups. Yeah, he and I were like we we were our band. We were the band, you know. Oh. Um, and we would go into L.A. and like record with older people who, you know, were really just in their mid forties then, and we thought, <laughs> yeah, hey, right? yeah. <laughs> what? listen, uh, I'm beyond so. that now, man. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know, like we were seeking out people like Greg Lease and Don Heffington and Bob Glaub and. Um, Hutch Hutchinson and you know all of like kind of studio people who played with all these great bands and on all these records because we were uh, trying to learn to play in a certain way Um, we weren't I wasn't anyway John was more of a jam guy very much more because he was into the Almond Brothers and he was a part of this world uh, more than me um but uh yeah that's where we were at that's where i my head was at i wasn't yeah i wasn't like touring all the time i was recording a lot and writing so where do you when do you first meet ryan and to what extent was he familiar with with your work yeah i met ryan in 97 or 6 no 97 at um south by southwest he already knew me because Jim Scott had made my first record. Uh-huh. Uh, but, and yeah, and then he. So that's how he. That was the initial. Yeah, I met him there and he said, Oh, you're that guy. You worked with Jim. And Strangers Al- Almanac was like just coming out. And, you know, Whiskey Town had a huge buzz. So. Great band. Yeah, they were great. Um, and that was that whole Raleigh scene, too. You know, at that time was just insane. There were so many good bands. Two Dollar Pistols. Yeah, and like, you know, uh, Six String Drag, Kenny Roby, all these really amazing people who all, like, had their own style and identity, you know. There was no, there was really no copycatting then, you know. Um, All of this, like, forensically studied music now. I mean, a lot of the alt stuff, the outlaws things and Americana, like, it's all really good, but it's all been studied. I notice a lot of it, it's, it's been studied to the point where it's just like been perfected and uh songwriting by numbers at, at its worst in a way you know um, but it wasn't like that then in whiskey right. town was not like it was all not hybrid all. there were punk influences it was country it was like a mix of all this weird stuff but, and, but like, you didn't work with ryan until later i mean did he yeah. invite you into the studio kind of did, was there a crisis or something he, you first worked in the studio right <laughs> yes there was a crisis <laughs> well, what happened <laughs> um <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I would just run into him over the years. Like, um, yeah, I met him at, right, I met him at uh, South, South by, by South in in 97. And then I would run into him. I jammed, actually, at someone's, our friend's house was me and John Ginty and Ryan, like, recording somewhere in, like, 99. And then I hung out with him in New York in 99. And then he loved the Beachwood Sparks, and I was playing with them. And we'd talk about that. And then we were at South by again in 2001 when I was playing with Lucinda for a minute. And I remember sitting at a White Stripe show with Ryan, you know, and there were a couple of really crazy nights 
then <laughs> that we had. And then I didn't see Still him feels much. feels like yesterday, this crazy. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't see him much uh, for a bit because he got really big, you know. And then I ran into him on the street in 2005 outside of Brownies um, in New York, which is something else now. And um, I hear Neil, you know, from down the street, and I turn around, and it's him. He comes up and says, man, I've been looking for you. <laughs> My guitar player's gone. Man, will you come and play with me? And I said, all right. You know, so I went to his house, and John Graboff showed up, and maybe Brad was there. I don't know. We but he did... was in the middle of the record, right? No. It was... uh, oh, okay. No, no, no. It was, it was at the end. It was like, I don't know. He just, just destructed his band. Something crazy. I don't remember whatever happened. You know, I wasn't there, but... You know, they were on tour and then they weren't. And they were back in New York and everyone was freaking out or something, you know. <laughs> and they said, well, will you come and play? So I went and rehearsed and, and you know, it was immediately like, yeah, this is great. Because Ryan and I always knew, right from the time we we jammed with Ginty that one time in 99, there was some, like, we had guitars on, you know, and he played something and I answered it. And we both looked at each other like, huh. That was cool. All right. Well, now's not the time, but and then once we got back to it, you know, it was great. He and I were really uh that was a gr- we were a great guitar team, great singing team too. Um so I helped I guess, you know, bring that band back to life a little bit or just help put it back together. Um and then we had a few like, great years, you know. So Seth Neil um Kindly gave us time. Uh, notice he mentioned Greg, Greg Lice, the uh, pedal his manager. Hmm? Greg, his manager. No, Greg Lice, the pedal steel player. Oh, the- uh, he also mentioned Greg, his manager. Sorry, he's in uh, the Wolf Brothers now. He's part of the quintet, and I actually just watched them last night. It was a surprisingly strong show. Wolf Brothers. That's uh, Bob Weir's newest project. Yes, the Wolf- trio, the Wolf Brothers trio, is now a quintet. But then they, when they have the Wolf Pack, it's a ten piece. So it's Rat Dog. No, no. Oh, it's not as boring. Oh Jesus! Anyways, How, how's Bob doing? Is he remembering his lines? Uh, most of them did a full it, weatherport suite, and since he had stopped playing the first half because um, it's a little tough on his fingers, you know, he is very old. difficult part. So he had the strings and the horns playing. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. Is he uh, still doing his exercise videos? By the way, I got to give about him videos, I, but he still looks he still looks in shape. Got to give him credit. Like he, you He's know, ripped. He, and he he must not be drinking anymore, or if he is, he's got it under control finally after. But Greg, who Neil talks about and is in Wolf Brothers, too, uh, let's shout out. He's played with Joni Mitchell, Bruce Springsteen, Eric Clapton, Bill Frizzell, who, by the way, it's his birthday. Right Happy now, birthday, Billy Frizzelli. Jackson Brown and Seth. Huh? Are you sitting? I'm s- floating. He's also played with Daft Punk. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh. Retired my Daft God. Punk. And now we're moving on to cheer everyone up because it got a little heavy there. Sorry. But we're, you, you, when you want to be cheered up, you go to Brenda Bayless. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to Sarah J of dropped the dropped among this crowd podcast. Can you, can you can, but, 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 but what dropped among this crowd but, 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 podcast? But, 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 what it's among this crowd on Twitter, and the Conduit E Magazine, and Jimmy Rogers. I call him Jimmy Knowledge. He's Umfacts, not just for all on Twitter. These are uh, two people I've been talking with a lot, Seth. Oh, good. So I guess Rob's going to do another podcast. Have, well, and you, how about let's guess Rob's one of Rob's proposed podcasts is actually going to see the light of day. How about put it that way? For, but I have to help you even see, with giving me shit. Let's see how is many episodes... you can't do on your own? Let's see how many episodes you'll actually do. Oh, my God. No, once we get rolling, this one's going to be good. Believe me. 
I don't believe you. I, I you won't be interested in it, but it'll be very good yeah, and informative listen, and for listen. music fans, not for scenes or celebrity chasers. I, I really hope that you are able to do something, Rob. Thank it you. It would be amazing for you to have a dream that actually comes true. <laughs> You're such a great guy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll talk more about Brendan after this. Let's let's just let this one speak for itself and then talk. This is Brendan Bayless, front man, at a time. He's not a big interview guy. At a hotel, right down the street in downtown Atlanta. Let us into his hotel room. Yes, he had a clock that he was looking at. Of course. But he, he wasn't was a drinking f- wine at the time. He was a little flexible. That's what you do. What, what you do, folks, when you're interviewing. If you change the clock. If someone's really tight with time, you save the questions that you know they're going to want to talk about for right when the time's about to be up. Then you get into the five, ten minutes. Oh, that's is that listen- what you did? That's why you listen to the show. People. All right. Well, let's hear what he had to say. Every time I've met somebody famous, and I've, I've been lucky enough to be around a lot of famous people and in the right room at the right time, God knows why. But the only ones that really stick out were the, can we cuss on this? Uh, it's a Mother, podcast. You, say, you speak freely. Fucking A, man. The, uh, <laughs> the, only, the ones that stick out the most were the assholes, or the ones that were really short. And I've, I've met some people and had conversations where they're like, yeah, I met you once and you were a real asshole. And I was trying to think about it. I was like, you know, maybe you caught me on a bad day. You know, maybe I was going through a divorce or something or maybe i had to take a shit and you just the timing was really bad you know so i try and keep that in mind because it's true the the you can meet a hundred people and the the one bad experience is the one that give us one bad experience you had just one uh steve miller really that's shocking (laughs) (laughs) um christmas jam yeah it was a christmas jam um and I heard he was talking down to the staff. To he, the yeah, he walked on crew. stage, and you know, he he was really short with everybody in the room, from his band to the janitor to the bartender. And at one point during sound check, he just like yelled at the sound guy, he's like him down, him down, him down, everybody down, me way up. And I was like, okay, he's having a bad day, and that wasn't <laughs> it. And then the next day, I was walking down, or I was walking up the stairs in a stairwell, and he was coming down the stairwell. So it's just him and I, all by nobody in the room, just him and I. And I look at him, I go, "Hey, how you doing?" And he just looked at me, and he looked down, and just kept walking, didn't say a word. I was like, "Okay." And there's a guy who should be happy because he always kept his songwriting. He rights. took the money and he ran. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. So I mean, if anyone shouldn't be bitter, it's him. But anyways, I want to stay on because let's go to South Bend in the ni- uh, in the late '90s because a lot of your newer, younger fans need to know that Alibaba's Tahini is a big part of the history of Humphreys McGee. Oh yeah. Um, did they form first or did you? I think, well, with Umphreys, they were bef- I think they were before Umphreys because I was playing with Pony in a band called Tashi Station, obviously Star Wars reference. And I believe that Alibaba's was, a, yeah, they were playing first. And then shortly after, uh, yeah, they were in 97. And there's like only a few venues that the bands were playing at that time too, right? In a tiny little town. Yeah, it was um, Mickey's Pub, which is a hundred person cap, maybe, but we'd you know cram hundred, two hundred people in there. Mickey's Pub, Lula's Cafe, which was like a coffee shop, and then we had to like make our own venues or rent out like an Elks Lodge or something, you know, or play outside for free on campus or something. So yeah, Alibaba's was definitely playing around and and um I actually took two guitar lessons from Jake in the very beginning. 
And then I quickly realized how good he was. And then I realized that I needed to get him to join my team because I didn't want to compete. <laughs> it's like, um, if you can't beat him, join him or make him join you. Right. But his bandmate, Carl Engelman's a good friend of yours. And you mm-hmm. to this day play a bunch of his songs. I'd love to see you play more of his songs. Right. Um, was that, was there any weirdness or awkwardness in all that? Or was well, it all Carl, smooth? Carl left. Carl, I think was chasing, chasing love. Hmm. And he left South Bend, right? He left South Bend, and I remember, this is funny, because Jake, Carl, and Crojo, it was a trio, came over to my house when I was living with Andy, and so we're, so Umphreys was happening, and um, Jake sat down, they all, the three of them came over because they were playing right down the street, like some outside on the river, and I was like, what's up? And Jake sat down, he's like, well, Carl's quitting the band. And I was, I was in the room, it's like, okay, there's only four people, three of them are in the band, and I'm not, so what do I, I was like, all right, uh, okay, so uh, you guys want to smoke some weed? I don't know, what do you want to do? What do, you want to do? I didn't know how to change the subject, so, so yeah, he left, and then um, uh, Khalil, I, Khalil came in and replaced him, and that, only, that didn't last for too long, and then basically, Umphrey's moved to Chicago, and... It's funny because I remember bringing this up when it was Miro. We were just a, a five piece, and I remember bringing up let's let's ask Jake to join the band, and it didn't really it initially didn't sell to everybody. And I remember Miro particularly was like, "Well, we're not making any money. We can't even afford to live where we're living. How can we can't afford to to, to pay anybody else?" A legitimate point, which is a great point. So I went home and I called I called Jake anyway, <laughs> and I said, "Hey." I want you to join the band. I'm going to send you a bunch of music. Come learn it. Come out and sit in. And and I kind of made it happen. And I think it says a lot about you that you were willing to surrender to some extent, particularly with regard to solos, control of the band. Because I worked for a band in the 90s who remained nameless. And the lead guy did a similar thing. Let let a couple guys join the band mm-hmm. and surrender control. And it that it led to the implosion of the band. Those guys started to try to take over the band and the fact that you were able to trust him that that wouldn't happen, that it would be for the for the good of the band in the long run, says a lot about you. Were you did you have any reservations at all about it at the time? I mean, sure. At some point, you know, uh, there's this is working, why mess with it? But then, in my mind, it was, if we can get him in, then I don't see what's going to stop us. As long as we can keep it together, because that, for me, and that's I guess the quote I I can associate it with is Drew, our guitar tech, Drew Queen. He has this little card, and it's right by the tuner on his workstation, and it says, um, "There's no limit to what you can achieve if you don't mind who gets a a claim." I, or I can't. That's not. It, there's, there's no that, limit to what you can achieve if you don't care about who gets the acclaim, the credit, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's pretty much if you don't. I mean. And that kind of hit it on the head for me. It was like, I don't need... I'm happy to go to the grocery store and not be recognized. I don't care about that. I don't want to go out to dinner and be interrupted. I I don't want that. I don't do interviews, right? <laughs> so I'm happy to, to let somebody else take the light, you know, because I just don't want to get a real job. And any time we can talk about Alibaba's tahini on the show, we do. Which, by God, the way, every time you talk about Alibaba's tahini, I think about the this restaurant, re- this restaurant, and then that I've got tahini still, and I haven't. And I was like, God, I should have made that tahini tonight. Well, you have me back, and we'll make it. Ne- you can make it for me next time. How'd you like the food I made? 
It was excellent. Eggplant twice baked. We had chicken and some weird fries and the, the really salad leaf. was like the standout. Salad was awesome. Oh, that's my kale salad. What was it? it was a kale. I'm really into kale lately, man. You, you gotta listen. That's my the kale is. Uh, I'll give Kathy credit on the uh, kale. She got me going on the kale. But yeah, Alibaba's tahini. First of all, the restaurant next to the Variety. I hope they get through this. I hope when we go back to the Variety, it's still there. I love that place. That the Variety's still there? No, oh, the Variety's still going to be there. Believe me. They're um, AG's playing their cards right. The Variety ain't going anywhere. That place is awesome. Laurent put out. Laurent's the. Uh, he's been working the door for years. Huge right. Hawks fan too. So he posted on Facebook yesterday, like you know something like "I miss you guys" and blah blah. blah. So I wrote, "Yeah, Laurent." We miss you patting us down as well. Right. And then Ian Ron comes in, who's a photographer that many of our listeners uh, have his prints. And he writes, Ian comes in and goes, and yeah, Laron, we miss your soft hands. Yeah. Soft but firm. <laughs> soft but firm. You know, that's what he said. Very authorita- authoritative hands. <laughs> but, you know, kind of loving as well. You know? So it's like, I hope you're not bringing anything into this show. But if you are, I understand. And then you think back, like, okay, not even September 11th. You think back to, like, the. Uh, Vegas shooting. And then after Same the same night, Petty died. Well, why, yeah. So Vegas shooting happens. And then what happens to all the venues? Now they have metal detectors in front of them, uh, you know, to, and the entrance. So it's kind of, you know, and I say this because now coming out of COVID, when, when venues do reopen, and I'm talking about venues of the size of the Fox Theater and the Variety Playhouse and what have you. What's the change? Are we going to have to have cards, uh, vaccination cards? Are we going to get temperature checks? Don't know. We don't know. We but anyway, another but conversation. One weird thing about that Vegas shooting. Still no motive. A lot of these mass shootings, you end up getting a motive. Still no motive. Something weird with that one. Okay. Um, it, it hasn't. And it, it, it left a convert. It left a, what's the word? Conversation or it's left like no one talks about it anymore. What, what's up with that? I don't know, but that was really articulate and really brought it home. No, it's kind of annoying. At any rate, though, folks. It's been swept under the rug, yeah, because it's weird because there's no motive and it's there's something strange going on there, but I don't know. What do you think What do you think it is? I don't know. I'm well, not going to speculate because then people... Our listeners want to know what you think. Can I just say Alibaba Sahini, which was a precursor to Umphreys because Jake was in it, with Carl Engelman, who I love, who we're going to interview someday. Someday. Either on this show or... No, no, you'll do it on your other show, that, other that, show. that you're never going to do, but you would, you would love Carl. You and Emma did it all. Well, then why, why has he not been on our show? He doesn't eh, like you? Because of you, mainly, interrupting him all the time, probably. He wouldn't get into that. Other than that, he'd like you. But Bottom Feeders is available on vinyl at the Umphreys Speaking of interrupting... <laughs> Bottom Feeders is a great, their most recent release, and then you have Rock Stars and Lawnmowers available on CD. I, they used to have more stuff, but it might be sold out. You got to buy that stuff, dude. Why? If you like Alibaba's, that once it's sold out, it'll be gone. Oh yeah, it's not like Humphreys is in the mar- is you know looking to sell Alibaba stuff in perpetuity. You know what no, I mean? Now that buy stuff is now getting like 15, 20 years old, or how old is it now? Which what is Alibaba? The record the. The band? Yeah. Yeah, they were around in the nineties. Actually started a little before Humphreys. So they weird. Around a little longer than but they, but it's been an on again off again. Where did the time go? I got to anyway. see one of their reunions. I got to see three shows about fifteen years ago. Got to watch them rehearse. They rehearsed around me that Why can't you you know all these people? Why are we not doing a uh, WTNS live with them? Because you said too much Humphreys, too much Humphreys, too much Humphreys. I'd never say that. Oh my god. No, I give you shit, oh, but this the be- our best numbers are with Humphreys. Come on. Our best numbers consistently oh, are with Umphreys. I just should be a politician with this. Bullshit. I just don't want to do Umphreys every week. Like nobody if it wants was you, that. If, nobody wants that. If it was, th- if this, Except, uh, if, what this I'm was if this was WT, <laughs> if this was just with Turner and Turner, 
than it would be all Umphreys and sports. You're li- you'd be like, Brandon Bayless hit a home run. All right, all right. Let's, we're going on too long. Now, we got to get to Peter Rowan because he called me a historian, dude. And, and, and you know what else? This I do know what else. Do you know what else? This interview took place in a hotel mm-hmm. that just two months after this interview, Tom Brady in the same room celebrated his last Super Bowl championship with the New England Patriots. Same freaking room. Same room. How do you know this? Stalker. Because, that, because after the Patriots celebrated, I, I went to the hotel and asked, hey, where does the Patriots go? Oh, is it up over there? Same. We were like on the corner of it. Like we, when you walk in, we were there. And then that whole room behind us, that's where the Patriots were when they won the Super Bowl. How about that? How? How about that? Now, with Peter Rowan, who, by the way, if you don't know who Peter Rowan is, like Man, seriously, geez. folks. Come on. Pay attention. He, he really laid down. He held court with us. Yes. He opened up and he did not, he was not looking at the clock. Well, also, I think he liked that we weren't just Jerry Garcia, Jerry Garcia, Jerry Garcia. You know what I mean? And we talked about Jerry at some point, but it sure. wasn't like we were like just deadheads who heard about him just because it was associated with Jerry. We talked about, and, and again, read his body language. We started talking about Bill Monroe. He seemed very psyched to talk about Bill Monroe. The amount of people who have played with Bill Monroe get less and less every day. Yeah. So I was like, let's go on the Monroe train. Oh, my God. Again, though, Peter Rowan, is he's such a storyteller. Mm-hmm. All I ever want, and I, I said it on the show, but I, working Strings and Soul, the, yeah. uh, I've always wanted to see Peter Rowan campfire on the beach. Oh. Hey, Rob, what is one thing that you and Peter Rowan have in common? Well, we both grew up in Boston. What? Fell in love with Southern music, although uh-huh. I fell in love with a lot of other music, too. But. He's a widespread Panic fan? Um, well, how would Peter Rowan say widespread Panic? He's widespread Panic aware. He's widespread Panic aware. How would Peter Rowan say widespread panic? Widespread panic? Or do you go like, widespread panic? I don't know, but I'm having a hard time staying on topic here with you. How do you say that? I don't know. I'll just talk over it. So. Um, <laughs> so. What we hear about here, when I, when I was young in Massachusetts, I used to go to a thing called the Joe Val Bluegrass Festival. Honestly, I didn't really know who Joe Val was. I only went two or three times. It was one of these that moved around. And now, here's, here's although by the time we do this Rowan interview, I'd heard more about him. But here, it uh-huh. brought it all together, the very beginning of this clip that we play, and uh, uh-huh. throw it over to Peter Ron. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Ruin. And I met a very important person in Boston who was the mandolin player for Bill Keith and Jim Rooney. And his name was Joseph Valiente. And... He went by the musical name of Joe Val. Oh, Joe Val. There's a bluegrass festival in his name. They, there is a bluegrass festival in his name. And uh, I, I started, I was drawn to Joe. He was more of a country person. And I, I was not a, I didn't have my feet on the ground as far as like even being streetwise in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I mean, it was all sort of a urban uh Scene it was a little different, faster than what I was used to. But I was I was fairly country, and uh, not as they say, country as a chicken coop, but maybe <laughs> country as a <laughs> pair of galoshes or something. <laughs> but uh, so uh, with Joe Val, I, he started teaching me, and and the idea that I might go with Bill Monroe one day. I mean, I was, let's see, I was still. I was probably 18 or 19 when I would uh, 
take my mom's station wagon and go pick up Joe after five o'clock and bring him out to Wayland, which was about 15 miles from where Joe lived. And we'd go down and to the old barn on my property, my parents' property, and we'd sit around and play in the evening, you know. And Joe was giving up family time for us. And that didn't set well with his uh, his well, his wife. But, you know, it, it, it he made that choice to, to spend time with a young musician like myself and teach me. And what he taught me was the harmony singing, how the Leuven brothers and Blue Sky Boys and Monroe brothers would uh, space their notes, you know, to give that kind of airy, kind of like longing sound, which became the basis of bluegrass singing. Now, when Bill Monroe went out and stretched into bluegrass, different people who joined his band as lead singers would help uh, push the music in a certain direction. Like the great Jimmy Martin was very, really picked up on the blues uh, side of Bill. You know, many and different people like that. And the first guitarist he had was Clyde Moody, who uh, did Six White Horses and uh, played, uh, and all these uh, played guitar. And all these guys were still alive. That's the thing, is that we, when the first Bluegrass Festival happened in 1964 or 5, and Carlton Haney, a promoter from Virginia, brought up brought in every bluegrass band except Flat and Scruggs. But it was like bluegrass... Uh, well, there was a rivalry between yeah. Monroe and Flat and Scruggs because Flat and Scruggs had kind of shrugged their shoulder... I mean, given Bill the cold shoulder and left him and and were very... Uh, very energetically self-directed on their own promotion. Whereas Bill felt... Uh, he felt initially there was room for everybody. Like when during the 60s when I was with Bill in Nashville, there were, what, Jim and Jesse, the Osborne brothers, and Bill Monroe and Flatt and Scruggs. There were four major bluegrass bands on the Grand Ole Opry. And uh, that's a lot. And they competed. They, uh, it was competition. There yeah. was acrimony at times. Uh, but Between some of the folks. But... Uh, what happened at the first Bluegrass Festival brought everybody in. All those bands were there, um, except Flatt and Scruggs. Flatt and Scruggs had, uh, had kind of chosen uh, a path of their own refinement and uh, self-image. You know, they were on the Andy Griffith show and doing a lot of different things. Uh, on t Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, maybe they didn't do Andy Griffith, but they did the Beverly Hillbillies. That was the theme for the Beverly mm -hmm. Hillbillies. So that was national television. That's that's a big deal. It's big time. Yeah, and you know the Royal especially them when there's only four channels. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Four channels. Everybody saw that. Um, so just to bring that point a little to a close, uh, when Bill Monroe was offered a solo tour. Uh, by a very important person in the whole history named Ralph Rinsler. He had been, Ralph had been mandolin player in the uh, Greenbrier Boys. Um, but he was well educated and uh, he was like the John Hammond was for Columbia Records. Ralph Rinsler was for Bluegrass in that he could see where talent fit together. And 
he called Bill Keith up and said, you know, Bill Monroe is going to come up and play some solo dates. And Bill, at the time, you see, what Bluegrass was on a slide of unpopularity. It was about to burst back up again with the college kids. But at the time, it was, uh, it was country music and very kind of honky-tonk, high reverb, uh, you know, the whole honky-tonk mystique and stuff that had come from Hank Williams was now a commercial push. And uh, even Willie Nelson was still a songwriter in Nashville at that time. Uh, he played the Opry a couple of times. That was interesting. Yeah, wearing a Nehru suit. <laughs> he was 60 sort of guy. <laughs> so uh, when, when Bill Monroe came up north, it kind of galvanized everybody Tex Logan played fiddle, and he brought a young fiddle player out of New Jersey, Gene Lowinger. And it wasn't like, oh, you're not experienced, you can't play. It was like they just swept us up into the energy of what those guys had been building for years. So Bill Monroe came by himself, and Bill Keith played banjo. And I, I moved from mandolin to guitar to play with Bill. <clears throat> I already played guitar, but with Keith and Rooney, I was playing mandolin. And... Uh, we played three dates uh, up in New England in the country and ended up playing in Boston at Doc Watson's birthday. Uh, Do you remember the venue? Um, I think it was Jordan Hall. Uh-uh. Northeastern. Was it Northeastern? I yeah. think Jordan Hall's in Northeastern. And then there was a hall at Harvard, too, that was... It's a jewel box of a wooden hall. Sanders Theater. Sanders Theater. Harvard Hall. But I think it might have been Symphony Hall in Boston that we did the show. Oh, beautiful room. Yeah, a big theater. And um, and that was a big moment, you know, to be presented to a larger uh, cross-section of people. Um, and it was well-received, thunderous applause. Yeah, it was sold out. And But the, the people who were the stars, of course, were Doc Watson and Bill Monroe. And Doc was on the rise. You know, he was probably 36 or 7 at the time. I was 21 or 2. Bill Monroe was 51, 52. And it, it was like Ralph Rinsler had such a confidence in this music and these characters, I mean, these people, that once Bill Monroe was presented to the public like that, it was his power and his individuality was 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 just self-evident and the music was vibrant and they it, it was a memorable night uh doc watson and bill monroe played a a set together of the old monroe brothers tunes you know that bill had played with his his brother charlie years ago when they started out and so i mean and they were a huge hit in the south and um but Bill wasn't very forthcoming with compliments generally, but he clearly wanted you to go to Nashville with him. And what did he do to lure you other than say, I can help you? Peter Owens, I can help you. Nothing. He just said, I can help you? Yeah, no offer here. of I'll pay your way, No, nothing like that. Um, you ought to come to Nashville, I can help you. <laughs> that was what he said. Uh, and I don't know if he meant join his band. He might have meant... Uh, he actually later on offered to manage myself and David Grisman as a duo. Oh. Yeah. But the way Bill said things was like, and, then, and, and it'll say when you come to a show, Pete Rones and David Grisman, 
managed by Bill Monroe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's what started it. And uh, over the next couple of years, you know, it uh, we Bill Keith and I would drive to Nashville and go to what they called the DJ convention, which is now Fanfare. But the DJ convention at that time was all musicians and DJs and instrument uh, manufacturers. And it was a fantastic get-together because you got to see everybody outside their jobs, you know. And everybody, you found out everybody was paying attention. They know who you were. Normally, when you're working a show on stage, nobody says hello and everybody's just doing their thing. So I got to hang out with a lot of people that I admired when we'd go to the DJ conventions and still probably 20 years old. And uh, I remember going up to the Fender guitar room and seeing these steel guitar players, Buddy Emmons and Buddy Charlton, jamming on their steel guitars with their Fender amps and everything. And it was jaw-dropping. They were they were playing Duke Ellington and, and Count Basie music. Huh. Wow. That's what they were steeped in. And I thought, you know, this is a Nashville nobody knows about. <laughs> I thought this this might be the bridge between jazz and and the country music players. But outside of their own following, it never happened nationally. You know, those guys never got invited to play Newport or, you know, things were compartmentalized pretty much. But the music was astounding. And and then that began my my relationship with Nashville through the Grand Old Opry, where backstage there you'd hear epic jams with people, very casual. But you go back to Ernest Tubbs' dressing room, all tucked way, way in the back of the the warren of rooms backstage at the old Ryman Auditorium. And there would be the steel players. There'd be three or four steels all put it, like, squared up against each other. And all these guys in their opera uniforms, you know, cowboy hats and steel-toed boots, just jamming away, you know. And then they're going to get back on their buses and drive out of Nashville that night and be in Oklahoma for the matinee the next day, you know. So it was that world, the world of country music of Hank Snow and Ernest Tubb. We climbed upon a mountain Bill Monroe and I So I could see the light that shines in Carter's family's eye Bill Monroe had me drive him from Tennessee up to the Clinch Mountains to meet with Carter Stanley at the Stanley Brothers' old home place. And we cut up on that mountain to a cleared field, and there was Carter sitting there. I think he wanted to see Bill because he had a feeling of mortality at that time. And Bill Monroe introduced me to Carter Stanley and said, Carter, this here's Pete Rones. He thinks he's a bluegrass boy. Yes. Bluegrass Boy, and I come to think of it, we didn't really say that before, so for the uninitiated, Peter Rowan was a member of the Bluegrass Boys, the legendary Bill Monroe band, team, whatever. Mm, yes. He also was in Old in the Way with Jerry Garcia and Vassar Clements and David Grisman. And Chris, the dog. John Cohn on bass most of the time. The dog. Still the greatest selling Bluegrass album, I think, or is Oh Brother, We're Out There? One of the two greatest Bluegrass <laughs> selling Bluegrass <laughs> albums, I guess. <laughs> 
Um, but but he even talked to yeah, right. You called it there though. Uh, he actually spelled out how bluegrass became bluegrass in one sentence. In I, that, I mean, it was kind of an underground thing to some extent. You know, a lot of these country musicians that like jazz would jam out and get into doing jazzy stuff on country instruments, and uh, and it was this whole thing that was yeah. only Bill Monroe was really representing Bill Monroe or the Osbournes, or it wasn't it wasn't a prevalent thing like it is now. And again, if you go back to our catalog of interviews, he, here's Peter Rowan talking about that first generation. You got Peter Rowan in the center, and then you've got Sam Bush, and now you've, and then from that, from there in the middle, and then the new guys, the uh, the green skies and the railroad earths, and the, uh, I'm not trying to put them all on the same level. What I'm trying to say is the music he's evolved. It's an ongoing thing, and that's the that's and like that, that's why Billy Strings is so significant. He's going to carry it into the future for decades. Now, if you listen to Billy Strings, the little clip that we did last week, and you listen to Peter Rowan. Do you is it just me or do you hear Billy Strings as maybe a a younger, faster talking there Peter be, Rowan in a lot of ways? Similarities there could be. Just there's stuff away. It's like the old soul, the part of the the old soul part of Billy Strings shines in Peter Rowan. That song at, uh, was at the end. There is the light in Carter Stanley's eyes. It is the mm-hmm. somewhat of the title track from Carter Stanley's eyes. A Peter Rowan record you might want to get. He's still making great records. Oops, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, I also want to say he mentioned the Boston Symphony Hall. Yes, he did, which you're... When I was a kid, my mother took me to see Harry Ellis Dixon do Boston Pops uh, in the late 70s. That's the first the first rock show I ever saw was Frank Zappa. Hey, you, you know, you know Don't start it? interrupting because you got some wine in you. First rock concert I ever saw was the fall of 1981, Frank Zappa. It be you, but the first music show I ever saw was at the Symphony Hall, and it was Harry Ellis Dixon doing like the pops and the standards, and it was when I first really got a taste for live music, and it was really cool to hear Peter talk about mention it. Yeah, that that was that really was. Thanks, man. Hey, <laughs> speaking of which, Rob, we're back at episode three intro, <laughs> folks. If you like this right now, go to episode three, listen to the intro. Seth, that is worst. No, for real though, Rob. You well, know, we're who celebrating. Else? It's the fifth anniversary. Do you know who else did? <laughs> do you know oh who God. Did? I'm in hell. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Rob. Podcast Rob, right now. You're doing this. Jesus Rob, Rob, Rob. You, you, suck. <laughs> you suck. You're so fucking bad. Do you know who else did Boston Pops? Who? Your oh. mom. Oh. <laughs> no, because your well, dad. That's how we got free your, tickets. Your dad. Your dad. Your dad was from Boston, so therefore your no, my mom. My dad was originally from uh, uh, what is it? Hey, hey, uh, somewhere in Ohio. Oh, uh, can you not just? He lived in Boston. No, but then he moved to Indiana. They met in Indiana, and then they went. Then they went to Boston. But fine, he was in Boston for a moment. Your mom did Boston Pops. Your, your dad was Pops. Yeah, that was really bad. Even by your standards, that was really, really fucking bad. Okay, but so oh, no, hold on, hold on. Tell me one time I was actually funny on the show. Was there a time? The Vince Herman uh, episode. What about the little rewind thing you did here? Yeah, there, there's moments here and there. It's just what happens with you, Seth, is you interject and get excited about wanting to have a quick quip, wanting to have a quick comment, wanting to be nimble-minded, but then you often blurt out something that isn't that funny. So it would almost behoove you to not try to be quick-witted, to maybe be a little more thoughtful and maybe have a filter so that stuff that other people might think of and dismiss and not say, you would also not say. Well, on a compliment, Rob, I will tell you that when you talked to Peter Rowan, you did a fantastic job of edging the conversation further. Thank you. And you know what? You are very nice because you are letting me do this next bonus cut that will end our our um, our soiree. Our little tribute. We were gonna our do soiree, a, we were going to do a, uh, another... Soiree. 
talk segment, but um, I'm going to make a call. I'm going to be Tom Brady at the line. This is our last segment, Seth. You think so? Well, what about I want to say more? This is Michael League. Back, he was. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna go back where it all begins. <laughs> we're bringing it all back home. <laughs> so many rows to ease my soul. That was one of my favorite. When Jerry passed, that was the song that got me through. Not that, I mean, God, that sounds so silly. Let me rephrase that. That is the Jerry. That's like the Jerry song that I just. The other night on a webcast, I saw Jackie Green doing on piano, and I was really moved. How is really, Jackie doing? He's doing. I don't watch all of his. My friend Dave Scruggs. You know Dave Scruggs. Yeah, of course. He watches every Jackie Green one and raves about him. I w- I've watched about five or six, and uh, he now has his whole band with him, which is and they're just it's rocking. It's awesome. And the Dylan covers. What did he do? Um, uh, not sooner or later. What, what, uh, what's a what's a sweetheart like you doing in a dump like this? He did a really cool. I think it was right before So Many Roads too. But what gonna, are you going to do in October? You're just going to see ten festivals in a weekend. Well, my friend Daniel my is friend. getting married October 9th. Wait, Daniel's getting married? Yeah, a, a quiet Atlanta legend, and very quiet guy, but definitely a legend if you know him. If you don't, sorry. But we're going to end with Michael League. Still, my favorite interview in the history of this podcast. Gotta my second you. favorite interview ever. No, no, he's in a league of his own for sure. And it, true, he really is. I know that's just an awful pun, but it's actually accurate. He's a wonderful producer. He's the uh, heart and soul. Snarky. He's very snarky. Of Snarky Puppy. And here, the reason I really wanted to include this, uh, it actually happened earlier in the interview than the clip we played last week. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to include it because I can't imagine being a young kid and going into another country and producing a record of icons of music of that country. And, and uh, it seems like it would be an overwhelming, intimidating. How, how do you go tell them what to do? These people have been doing it forever. And here, Michael walks us through how he did it with one legendary Cuban act. And, and then we're going to end with our most painfully, a song from our most painfully under-listened to episode, the Railroad Earth episode. Which we want to give more credit to Diamond Street Studios in Atlanta, Georgia, that hosted, I mean, listen, folks, again, it's not just like we just pop in. These musicians took time out of their day, out of their tour, out of their, the whole thing. This was not a, a oh quick God, They had flown overnight thing. from Colorado. They were, they were, they like totally rallied to do this. And it Railroad takes day. time to set up. So what we air as a hour and a half podcast really took a lot of energy and work. So I want to give a lot of credit to the musicians and Diamond Street Studios for producing, engineering, and performing. And also to the musicians who've been on the show who not only give us their time, but also when the shows are produced, you you give us a shout-out on social media. That's a big thank you because these we're creating little documents that are going to sit on the internet forever that promote your music. And even though we're grateful for you to, giving us the time, once you have... Why not shout it out and let people know about it on, online? I don't understand the well, ones that don't. Well, I think you told them why, Rob, a minute ago. It's because I interrupt them. One of the hosts is drunk a, sometimes. I'm never drunk during an interview. Oh, not during interviews. That's right. I'm trying to think if there was one time. <gasps> Chris Myers backstage at uh, Humphreys McGee. I was not drunk. And then main squeeze at, uh, even though I begged you to let me do it alone, the main squeeze at- Main squeeze at Electric Forest, yes. We both were a little tipsy. No, I was not as tipsy as you. I was fine. Whatever. You said something terrible, two terrible, obnoxious things in there. Yeah, but they they liked me. One about a woman that wasn't even, you didn't intend to, but it came off badly, really badly. Well, at least it wasn't 2021 when that happened. Woo, you 
would have gotten. Oh, me you too. know what? You're gonna get me. I'm gonna get. I'm Ooh. gonna get canceled now because someone's gonna go back and listen to the unlistened episode. No, I took it out. I took it out. They'll never find it. I, I think we scratched. I think we got rid of the audio. <laughs> we took a little bit out and destroyed the rest. No, nobody will ever find that. But and really, the, you know, we're at the level where if cancel culture tried to come at us, it would be it would benefit us. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Hey, folks, I want to so come thank after us, you fucking satirically challenged pricks. If you want to come after Rob, you're gonna have to get around his belly. But that's besides the point. It's gross, folks. It's so big. Yeah, sometimes so, he's right. I'm a little gross. On a sincere note, thank you, listeners. We do list- love you, especially the people who are tuned in now still. You're our real listeners. You're the real intellectually curious people who enjoy these interviews, enjoy what we do here. And, and honestly, sincerely, even though you're not Legion, we do appreciate the ones that are here. I know we're not a big name. We're kind of a kept secret, right, Seth? I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now here's Michael League, and then Railroad Earth will end us out. And folks... We're going to try to keep this going. Inside you know? out, WTNS.com. You could also go to iTunes and review us. You could uh, write Osiris, tell him you like our podcast, support us on social media, even just a like. or uh, the, the annoying thing with some of my friends is they'll compliment my- uh, Write your senator. They'll compliment our episode or something they see on Twitter, and then you'll go look, and they haven't acknowledged it. Don't be stingy with the acknowledgements, people. Don't acknowledge dopey, douchey shit and then ignore quality entertainment. Acknowledge quality entertainment. Come on, people. Jambase.com. And Jambase, we love you. Love you guys. Love Osiris. We love music lovers. Michael Eek. See you soon. So no one spoke English. Right. Um, I rolled into Havana with some demos of Eliades just playing like guitar and singing. Right. So my role in this situation was to choose the songs of the 25 songs that he sent me. Like which 11 are going to work. All originals. Um, n- not Never before recorded originals. The majority of them. There were one or two that were like old, famous Cuban songs. Okay. But the majority of them were new original songs that he wrote, you know. But they sound kind of traditional, you know. He's from the East, from from Santiago and Cuba, and they have a very specific style there. Um, uh, so, so I rolled in. Uh, no one spoke English. You know, I, I mean, my Spanish is better now, but at that time it wasn't fantastic. But I had to do the whole session in Spanish, which was interesting. Um, did you learn it for that, or did you no, learn no, that been, at University of North Texas? I've been no, I've been neither. Kind of in in the middle. I, I have been kind of just working on it individually for a while, and then that made me really have to kind of get it together, <laughs> sharpen up. And so I walked in, and he's with his band. You know, his son and these two guys. Everybody, you know, the youngest guys in his late 40s you know I mean these are like older Cuban dudes who've been playing together for decades and they've been playing the same way you know every song starts off with a three beat guitar intro and then the band comes in they sing the verses and the choruses Eliades takes a solo they sing a chorus and they end together every song every time you know so it was like my gig I mean that's just like it's like this is how it's done in this style of music, you know? And my gig, the reason why I was brought in, was to kind of change that with a band that isn't necessarily into changing that. To break the traditional structures and do something unique and new. I gotcha. But not, you know, I mean, not put a DJ on the shit. you right, know, not but reinvent like, the wheel. Right, but to provide the album with some elements that that will make the record stand out. Can you give us an example of that? From sure, yeah. I mean, there was one. <laughs> maybe one I mean, we could play. This is so funny. I mean, it's like there was one tune. 
called Carino Falso that like is a really beautiful tune and, and one of the one of the easiest things I could get them to do like kind of without argument was like let's let's have the first verse and chorus be just guitar bass and voice and then we'll come in with the percussion at this certain moment later just so that there's some kind of contour to the track so they were all like okay well we normally don't do that but we'll try it you know and then they were kind of into it they were like oh that's different and cool you know and i was like okay one victory you know <laughs> so i use that on a lot of tunes and that must be a great feeling these accomplished musicians and you're influencing them i mean you definitely feel something weird being white and talking to Cuban musicians and like in this kind of productorial, if that's a word, way. And you're surrounded by the greatest street music in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's, you feel this kind of like guilt of like, because we have a tradition, I mean, white people have a tradition of kind of co opting culture (laughs) you know i mean in good ways and bad ways i mean you know like blues probably wouldn't be around the world if like a white person wouldn't have gone out and field recorded it and like you know publicized i mean you know i mean we're we're getting into a dangerous zone talking about race but it's like (laughs) white people market you know what i mean it's like it's that's their thing and you can feel kind of like an exploiter at times like I feel like I felt a little uncomfortable there. Well, you're not colonizing, is the point. I was hired. Yeah. I didn't ask to do this record. A, you know, a, a Cuban guy asked me yeah. to to produce this album. You know, so it, so it's like that. I could take some comfort in, but you, you have to be sensitive. You know, I have to be yeah. sensitive to the situation and not come in as the big shot American right. with the huge ego and the music industry. You know, clout and like telling you know you simple cubans what to play or something you know what i mean it's like you go into the situation with an immense respect for the history of this music you know i mean i i've lo- been in love with cuban music my whole life but i had to do research before this record i had to check out the music from oriente you know from the eastern part of cuba i i went to matanzas and like stayed there for a few days and dug in to rumba of course a few days is nothing but you know like met the people from muñequitos and afro cuba and these like groups that have been around since the 50s you know that are still around and like you really have to go in with a with an immense sense of respect and humility you know, in order to ask these guys who are masters of their craft to do something different than they've been doing for the last 60 years, you know? And a lot of the things that I did were different weren't in the studio. So we did this tune. Sorry, I digress, but we went no, to... No, please do. We did Carino Falso, and I told them to come in later, and then we started recording recording the choruses where they all sing together, the coro. And I told them, they always sing in three-part harmony. Always. Every coro is in three-part harmony. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, for the coros before the percussion entrance... Let's do it in unison. And they looked at me like I was a fucking alien. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was like, they were like, you mean together, like together. And I Just was like, set a contrast, basically, right? Yeah, so that when the, then the band comes in, like the percussion finally comes in, the groove drops, it feels really great, and immediately it splits into three-part harmony. Yeah. And it's like, a, it's like a beautiful moment, you know? But they were like so skeptical. I mean, they were like... They were like, uh, is he speak? Is he saying what he means to say, or is this a translation thing? Or no, I was like, no, really, you know, unison, like together. And then we did it, and then they came and listened to it, and they loved it. You know, I mean, they were like, yeah. and it, to me, I'm like, wow, man, how deep is tradition in this country where the idea of singing a coro in unison just hadn't occurred to them because the 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 system in place is so good and so solid, and the rules when applied 
functions so well. When I do this, you do this. And that's how we've done it for a long time. And that's how we're going to keep doing it, you know? That those kind of thoughts hadn't occurred to them. And that's kind of why I was there. If I told you all about it, your head would spin All the places that we've been And the trail of years left behind If I told you all about it, I could write a book All that we took Aren't we lucky Yes, we're lucky To be alive All for the moment All for the thrill All for the I told you all about it, it'd break your heart. All the good people that fell apart, and the trail of tears left behind.
gonna stare at the fire till the coast is clear Sip my whiskey till I disappear And contemplate these lonely, lonely stars If I had all the money I threw away I'd pack it all in, I'd fly today Or maybe Gone.